Good evening, everyone. We are just two hours away from seeing President Joe Biden take the dais right there in the House of Representatives to deliver his second State of the Union address to a joint session of Congress. And the stakes are extremely high. It comes after a year when women saw their rights to their own bodies taken away. Books and lessons about black history and LGBTQ folks are being banned. And very real threats to democracy are still looming large. This is an opportunity for President Biden to speak directly to the American people about where we are as a country and to set the tone for what the next two years of his term will look like. Biden is expected to tout his administration's accomplishments with an emphasis on the strong economy, super low unemployment and receding inflation, while also making a renewed call for bipartisanship despite a divided Congress. In a just released excerpt from the president's prepared speech, Biden is expected to say, quote, To my Republican friends, if we could work together in the last Congress, there is no reason we can't work together in this new Congress. The people sent us a clear message, fighting for the sake of fighting, power for the sake of power, conflict for the sake of conflict gets us nowhere. And that's always been my vision for the country, the president will say, to restore the soul of the nation, to rebuild the backbone of America, the middle class, and to unite the country. Now, that last bit may be easier said than done for a president who's working with a house now run by a party that's filled with extremists, quite frankly, some of whom just two years ago in that very room tried to overturn his election and install the man he defeated in his place. Tonight is also more than just a normal address before Congress for President Biden. It's an unofficial kickoff to his presumed reelection campaign. And it comes as he is facing some uphill battles. Poll numbers show a majority of Americans aren't really feeling the impact of his policies. While several of his major legislative goals, including police reform, voting rights, a national assault weapons ban, and codifying Roe v. Wade, well, they remain stuck in congressional limbo. Joining me now from the White House is Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. Uh, it's so good to see you, my friend. I, 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 hey, Joy. I, well, and look at us in the color matching. I love that the, the memo went out. I was thinking about that. <laughs> I totally was thinking about that while you were doing the intro. I was like, oh, we, we're matching. Mind meld. So, so let me ask you about this. And now, you and I have talked about this before on uh, in previous programs and even on this show. Joe Biden, part of Bidening is his eternal optimism. And, uh, you know, I have asked him this question in the past and been very skeptical about the idea of his seemingly firm belief that he can find a way to work with the other side. This other side, though, we are literally going to be in the same room where insurrectionists attempted to overturn the election and where some of the people that are going to be sitting in that chamber voted after they ran for their lives to overturn his election. What is the basis um, for this optimistic line or is this good politics, but he understands that it's not possible? So here's the thing, Joy. I think if you know Joe Biden, if you know this president and you followed him throughout his career, 36 years as a senator, eight years as a vice president, and then these last two years, you you would hear him over and over talk again, talk about optimism and being optimistic, not betting against the American people and the word of possibilities. That is something that the president has infused and has said the last two years specifically as he looks at the future 
of, of this country. And so you'll see that. You'll see that in his speech tonight. And it is incredibly important. And let's not forget, when he walked into office, right, there was the economy was on a downturn. COVID was ravaging uh, throughout the country, throughout the world. And he got us back on our feet because he was optimistic, because he put forth a real strategy to deal with the economy, a real strategy to make sure people uh, were getting shots in arms. And what we saw because of he took that action is we saw uh, job creation, record job creation, 12 million jobs have been created under this administration, 800,000 are manufacturing jobs. You see wages go up. You see unemployment at a historic low in more than than 50 years. And those are the things that matter. And one more thing I want to say, because this is really important. You were talking about the excerpts. There is one line in the excerpts that we put out tonight, which talks about how the present economic plan invests in places that have been places and people that have been left behind. And that is what this president has done. If you think about how he has transformed economic policy instead of trickle down economics, and I know you've talked about that, Joy, he do, he put together an economy that builds it from the bottom up and the middle out, which means, Joy, it leaves no one behind. Well, let me ask you this question, Kareen. What is the White House take on why those policy wins, which are objectively factual, right, and the economic improvements that we can see, we see the numbers, we know that they are going in the right direction. Why do you suppose that that is not translating to more support for the president and more support, you know, for the idea that he's doing a good job and making good on his promises? Because the polls are showing it is not breaking through. So one thing that I know the president would say if he was standing in, in front of you right now, Joy, is he would say he would meet where the, he would meet people where they are, understand that folks, folks are still struggling. We were, we just went through a pandemic, right? We just went through to once, once in a, once in a generation pandemic, which is a real thing that the president tried to get us out of and that we are getting out of. And then the other thing he would probably say to you, Joy, and I know he would say this is a lot of the policies that got passed have not been implemented yet, right? If you think about the Inflation Reduction Act, which is going to lower costs uh, for health care uh, for many, many people, millions of people across the country, which is actually going to d- deal with lowering utility costs for many people across the country, dealing with a high cost inflation. That's why it's called the Inflation Reduction Act. We're going to see that effect, that implementation of it this in this in this year. And so people will start feeling what the president's economic policy is truly doing, the bipartisan infrastructure legislation. Remember, in the last administration, and we've talked about this, Infrastructure Week was a was a joke. So many presidents had tried to do this really historic piece of legislation that clearly the president signed into law, fi- fixing bridges and tunnels and streets. That folks are going to start seeing that. It's going to create jobs. It's really going to make a difference in lives of, of Americans and American families across the country. So a lot of the implementation that we'll see, where people will start feeling that, it's going to happen in the next couple of months. So there's still work to be done. The president's going to, again, meet people where they are. We're going to hear a Joe Biden speech uh, tonight, which is going to be empathetic, which is going to lay out the progress that we've seen the last two years. But again, as we started this conversation, also be optimistic. Kareen Jean-Pierre, uh, White House Press Secretary, uh, thank you very much. Appreciate Thank you, Joy. You. Cheers. Uh, joining me now is Simone Sanders, Ta- Simone Sanders Townsend, former spokesperson for Vice President Kamala Harris and host of Simone on MSNBC. Jen Psaki, former White House Press Secretary and MSNBC host. And Michael Steele, former chairman of the Republican National Committee, MSNBC political analyst and host 
of the Michael Steele podcast. Hosts all three. We need to move you over to this camp so you can be hosting over here. I heard Stephanie Rule say that last night. We're your lobbying, lobbying team. So I want to come right down the middle to you, Jen, because look, the, the empirical facts are the empirical facts, yeah. right? I mean, the, the economy is on the upswing. But to Kareem Jean-Pierre's point, when legislation is passed the way we understand mm-hmm. it, it doesn't, it's not like you pass it and then all of a sudden the money goes out. Right. Other than the stimmies, right? The stimmy was sort of a thing in your hands yes, that checks. you could people feel. It. And so people were like, oh, I like that. Yeah. So with this, is this just a matter of waiting for the trucks to start rolling and the you know buildings to start being built? And that is what in, in the White House's mind will carry Biden through. That's a part of it, Joy. And there's no question that if there's a bridge like that Brent Spence bridge, by the way, I've dr- driven over that a million times. It's scary. Once that's rebuilt, people will say, I don't know about Joe, Joe Biden, but I'm happy this bridge is rebuilt. But the other part of it is they have not done a lot of contrasting of who he is and what he represents with what the other side represents. And Joe Biden says they don't compare me with the almighty, compare me with the alternative. He's not the first person to say that. Yeah. But that, I think, is kind of a mantra bumper sticker in their minds moving forward. Yes. Is everything done? It's not. But give me more time because I have a plan and that's chaotic, crazy over there. And that contrast will help them uh, that I think they'll start drawing tonight. It, it does feel like Republicans are trying to help him do that. Right? I mean, the, the reality is in a, <laughs> in a normal universe, Joe Biden, who's a, a white working class, older guy, he, there's nothing about him that is threatening to like the psyche of the average Republican 30 years ago. Right. right. There's he's not ethnic. He's right. not a woman. He's, you know, a straight white guy. All right. Let's just be clear. He's he, right. And, but, and the re, but the reality is in this political climate. Joe Biden could literally save Kevin McCarthy's mom from a burning building and he'd still say he was the devil, right? Like, it's like that is the way that the politics are built. And I look at these past approval ratings and Biden isn't really all that different from any previous president. It's not that different. Right. But this climate feels like there's nothing he could say that would make his bipartisanship dream come true. I say, I, I- I get that, but I actually kind of disagree with it. And I think tonight the president has a chance to talk to working class Americans, yeah. as Joe has done since he was deemed Joe from Scranton. Yeah. That guy is the guy that can still reach into, as he did in 20, uh, six, uh, 2020 um, and in 2016, to to. Not, not six, so much 16, but it's certainly in 20, to reach those voters who are Trump voters, um, who aren't all in MAGA land, who aren't all kind of, you know, conspiracy out and all of that. But folks who just want to, what's the future for my grandkids? What's the future for you know, my family? You know, as we're trying to navigate the inflation and, right. and the gas prices and the like. That, Joe, has a chance to connect a dot that the administration, in my view, up to now has not been very successful at connecting people to the economy, to the global uh, effort uh, that we have in Ukraine, to healthcare issues, insulin um, that people need, um, manufacturing, all of these things that touch on people in ways that are everyday for them. Mm-hmm. That Joe needs to come forward and have a conversation because that's the Joe McCarthy sitting behind him can't do anything with. Yeah. You know, Joy, I think along those lines, that is a message, though, that also speaks to working class. When we talk about working class people in America, sometimes people hear, oh, white people, but working class black and brown folks. I think that uh, across the country, people need to hear how the the Brent Spence Bridge and the project that is happening there means jobs in their communities, jobs, frankly, that 
for a long time were locked out for black and brown people in this country. But because the Biden administration has a focus on equity. Right. They those jobs will now be available to them. And so I do think that it is a message um, that will be helpful. But you also have to just talk about, OK, what you have done, what you plan to oh, yeah. do yeah. Yeah. and 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 be very specific about what you think you can get done. And, and I think we we're going to hear we know that those kind of policies are powerful because Republicans have been trying to take credit for things they voted yeah. against. So let me read a little bit of this, the, the, the piece that you're talking about, my economic plan. This is what um, President Biden will say is about investing in places and people that have been forgotten. Amid the economic upheaval of the past four decades, too many people have been left behind are treated like they're invisible. Maybe that's you watching at home. You remember the jobs that went away. You wonder whether the path exists anymore for you and your children to get ahead without moving away. I get it. That's how we're building an economy where no one's left behind. That's what we're talking about. Right. And the thing is, there is a theory of the case, right, that has been made that what Biden has done is to try to wrestle back some of the white working class, which you can argue he did in Pennsylvania, places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin in order to win, right? And that he's clawing them back with things that they can actually do in the new economy, jobs they can have. Yeah, no, I, I think that that section of the speech, whenever it happens, I think can be a very connecting moment mm-hmm. because you have the president saying, I get it. I, I you're you're the, the guy and the gal that no one sees, but I see you. And that has been actually a superpower for someone like Trump who speaks to that sense of being left aside and, and cast away. So, you know, you'll hear the, the, the language coming back. You know, they refer to, you know, they make fun of your God and your guns. They call you deplorables. They call you all these names. So that feeds that particular insecurity that voters may have that, am I really being left behind? Right. And I think I the president can be, here would be well, let, me, let me just say, the, the president can then wrap that around and say, no, 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 no. Right. I see you. I get it. Come on with me. Let me show you what we've done. That's almost the most powerful and important part of this speech. I mean, Joe Biden, if left to his own devices, might give 10 pages of all of his bills he's passed, data points, of which there are a lot of good ones, to be honest. But the way people feel, how you make them feel who are watching at home, forget the room, move beyond the room and whatever crazy heckling is going to happen in there. If they feel like I am invisible, he sees me, he hears me, that's economic. That is, I'm worried about my rights as a woman to an abortion. That is, I'm worried about police brutality. There's a lot of meanings to that. And that message is is exactly what he needs to deliver. And here's the thing. There's a balance, right? You know, because we have to understand that the people who are going to primarily be listening and wanting to hear Joe Biden are Democrats. Okay? Just to be blunt, right? There's going to be some people who are going to hate watch on the other side. Mm -hmm. There'll be some people who will be watching on Fox News just so they can hear, you know, Tucker Carlson whenever scream about it. Whatever. But mostly the audience is Democrats. Mm -hmm. So there's a balance, and you know this from having just been recently on this campaign, between saying the things that are bipartisan and that try to pull in independents and Republicans and red meat. Biden is not a red meat guy. And so how does he do what he's trying to do without looking to a lot of black folk who say, here go the Democrats again, chasing white working class well, voters and, that's what and not talking to I was just about to, to say about the conversation we were having, you know, the, the reaching out to the MAGA voters and whatnot, to people who might have uh, like pieces of the MAGA agenda, but are just everyday regular Americans. I think... Well, <laughs> 
look, Democrats have not won white voters in a presidential election since well before Bill Clinton's, and they're not no, winning them. The 60s. Yeah, yeah. Come on now. And they're not winning them in 2024, mm-hmm. let alone 2028. And so uh, while this is not a, uh, an election speech, this is, in fact, the biggest stage that the president will have prior to his election, uh, his reelection announcement that's expected to come. And so what I think is important is that as we are speaking to all, as he speaks to all of those things, the economy, uh, he, he details how black people, how brown people are a part of that message of not being left out. You heard a lot of administration officials today um, talking about the fact that unemployment is at a record low. Black unemployment before Biden came into office was over 9 percent. Now it's well under 4 percent, I do believe. It is still high. Uh, it's always twice that of white unemployment in the overall unemployment in this country. But it has come down. And so I think that that is important. Speaking to the issues of abortion, as Jen said, uh, the police brutality issue, the Congressional Black Caucus, I spoke with senior leadership there today, and they told me that they are very confident about the language that they are going to hear from the president on this particular issue that puts it not just an issue for black Americans, but an issue for all Americans. It's why it, something needs to be done about you it. Know, part of what he has to do, too, tonight is that he has to block any thought of anyone running against him. Right. I mean, th- part of what he can do with this, I could say, is that this is a way to say, I have all of these constituencies on hand mm-hmm. and some of the people who are coming. So Raphael Warnock, Senator Warnock, is bringing in somebody who benefited from that insulin bill. Yeah. Right. And so there, 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 there are pieces of it. There are, there are people who are bringing victims of gun violence, families right. of victims of gun violence. How does he do a speech that essentially says, I got this? I can not only do these next two years, but don't even think about coming for me in a primary. I've got this for another four years. I think he needs to do a combination of what we've all been talking about, right? Which is speaking to who he's fighting for, which is not just white working class voters or trying to get the Trump people. It's a range of people in this country. And he does also need to do what you said, Joy, which is throw some red meat, right? Which, by the way, the majority of people like the red meat, right? The majority of people in this country want women to have access to an abortion, believe there should be greater accountability for police. And I think he's going to do that. But pick his moments. That's a very Joe Biden thing to do. He's not going to be all punching people in the face. He'll pick the moments to do it. And he'll just say, come on, man, a couple of times. I have to ask you this about the other side, because (laughs) giving giving the response is never a good gig. It didn't go well for Rubio, the little tiny bottle of water. Like, it's never good. Why would the Republican Party pick Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who is most famous for lying a lot? when she was Donald Trump's spokeswoman? Well, one, that wasn't a factor in consideration, uh, the point you just made. Two, uh, to set up the contrast about the aged, aged, uh, senile, old uh, President Biden against this— Against against the youthfulness of the Republican Party, even though they're about to nominate someone who is an octogenarian as well. Yeah. But but that's but that I'm just giving you how they're looking at it. The other thing is she's not a presidential or vice presidential threat. All right. So you don't have to put on stage someone who could potentially be in the mix for the nomination against Trump in 2024. Because they wouldn't want it, though. Right. 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 I mean, she gives you. Well, she's but she's an easy she's an easy uh, way to sort of bank shot, if you will, to bring sort of the Trumpian gravitas as his former spokesperson, as well as the youthful uh, youngest governor in the country, female for example, um, as well. So there are a number of visuals yeah. uh, that the party is looking to put out tonight. What's going to be interesting is what she says. Well, and what she says I, is largely going to follow 
the place, the playbook. She says every day we are told that we must partake of their in their rituals, salute their flags and worship their false idols, all while big government colludes with big tech to strip away the most American thing, your freedom of speech. At a time when Republicans are banning books and when she has banned the word Latinx, that is her her executive orders are bathroom bills and banning a word and critical race theory. But she's going to get up here and talk about freedom of speech being banned. I don't know. It doesn't feel like a really savvy choice, but that's why I'm on TV and not in politics. So who knows? (laughs) Simone Sanders, Townsend, Jen Psaki, Michael Steele. Thank you very much, my friends. Really appreciate it. Up next, the Biden economy as our coverage of the president's State of the Union address rolls right along. (laughs) President Biden's State of the Union address will cover a lot of ground, but most Americans want to hear what's happening with the economy. Frankly, President Biden has plenty to brag about. The economy is rebounding after the pandemic. The unemployment rate keeps beating expectations and has hit a 53-year low. In fact, since President Biden took office, 12 million jobs have been created. Quick point of reference. Donald Trump presided over the worst labor market in modern American history. Let me repeat that. The worst in modern American history. These Biden accomplishments are nothing to sneeze at, but that doesn't mean that we are out of the woods. While inflation is still too high for most of us, it is waning. That is really good news. But Americans aren't necessarily feeling it. A string of new polls show that Americans are not happy with high prices and they're not convinced that the country can avoid a recession. It doesn't help that Republicans are threatening to push the fragile economy over the brink by refusing to raise the debt ceiling. Joining me now, Stephanie Rule, NBC News senior business analyst and host of the 11th Hour on MSNBC and my pal. And that's the thing. We were just talking about this in the break. No one ever says the economy is good. (laughs) Okay, that's the whole ball of wax here, right? Can you ever think of a time when people are going, I feel really financially secure, really happy with how I'm doing? No. So people don't necessarily feel good because, you know, prices are high. But it is factually incorrect to say the economy is in the toilet. We're headed in the wrong direction. You just went through the data. And while Republicans keep pushing this narrative, what Democrats really need to do right now is, I'll show you mine right. if you show me yours. Yeah. I have spent the last week and a half, not just talking about the, to the White House about the State of the Union address, but to Republicans to find out what are your policies that you are putting forth, right? right? What is it that you want Joe Biden to cut? And they don't have a unified message. They don't have any specific asks. Because their message is theatrical, right? He's a Democrat, so they have to say he's spending and spending and spending. Here's the thing that I, I, I will caveat what we were just talking about. People will still come up to me and say, in retrospect, they weren't saying it during, but in retrospect, they're like, I had so much more money under Trump. It's a thing that people think in their head, even though the economy says, no, you didn't, right? Your, your 401k is less, is, was less than it's more now. Your, you know, th- unemployment is lower now. But people will say, and when they think back on it, yeah, but I had so much more money under Trump. Why but is that? But that's also traditional Republican messaging. Republicans are the first to get out of the gate yeah. and say the economy is great. And the thing is, the economy is never totally great or totally terrible for everyone. It's a complicated economy. However, Democrats do need to do a better job of running a victory lap on economic wins. They are so careful and mindful, and they think, listen, there's some Americans that are left out. You know, I've said it to you before. It's like, unless every kid in America has a cupcake, they're unwilling to sing happy birthday. Well, I understand that sentiment. That is not good political strategy. Biden does have a lot of economic wins, and he should not only tout them, he's about to go on the road, and he should be showing them. And we 
know that um, Kamala Harris is going to be hitting the road. And look, this is the first female vice president. You'd think they'd put her out to talk about the abortion issue. She could talk a lot about the police reform issue. She was part of crafting police reform when she was a senator. But they are putting her out on the economy. She's going to Georgia. Very important state for them. They are trying to now sort of lean in. They leaned in with Pete Buttigieg talking about infrastructure. Is part of the job going to be done for them by surrogates, but also by the fact that the shovels will then start going in the ground in the next couple of months? 100%. Do you remember how many infrastructure weeks former (laughs) President Trump had? 475. 5, 10, 15. (laughs) President Biden can actually say on a bipartisan basis, we passed an infrastructure law. And across this country, shovels are going in the ground, right? Think about the chip manufacturing that's about to happen here. We had supply chain issues. We had a chip shortage. One of the biggest issues was that they were all produced overseas. So every surrogate this president has needs to get on the road, talk to the American people and show them. Because if you don't, you're just going to fall right back to people saying, damn, do you know how much eggs and cost? And by the way, Republicans will show up and try to take credit for the shovels going in the grounds. So, do I mean, it, it, it seems the logical answer to that is that Biden should literally whistle stop tour everywhere there's a shovel going in the ground and say, hey, that's me. That's mine. That's do, Biden bucks. Do you remember after the American Rescue Plan that didn't get support from Republicans? You saw Republicans going to local restaurants in their district saying, save yeah. this restaurant. Yeah, no, you didn't. No, the, didn't. The Restaurant Act was inside the American Rescue Plan. That's right. Plan. Now, if you want to debate was too much aid given, wasn't there enough, was there not enough oversight? That debate can happen. It can happen over here. But to say the economy is headed in the wrong direction and it's yeah. in a bad place. Yeah. Joy, it's just not And especially true. when you have Republicans who actually took PPP loans. And I am Last shocked that Democrats have not made more of this. There are people sitting in that chamber who got loans forgiven, who are then complaining yes, that student loans Joy, would be forgiven, but they took the money. Democrats can't make that argument. Do you know why? Because there were some Democrats that also took PPP they got the loan. money. Right. Right. So, well, so they, they don't have completely clean hands here either. The fact of the matter is there was not enough oversight. We needed to give a huge amount of money to save this country that was on the brink of economic disaster. Yeah. But it really seems like and the fault is on both parties. It's why people don't trust the government. Come on, man. Yeah. You did not need to leave the barn door quite that open. Well, you know what people trust? Stimmy checks. That was the most effective ca- uh, campaign strategy for Biden and the Democrats. When those shovels go in, that's like a stimmy check because people sure go, wait a minute, I can get that job and I can get how much per hour? Real yeah, jobs, real, real jobs, businesses real money. creating bigger businesses across the country in a lot of red states. A lot of millionaires are going to be made in a lot of red states 100%. with those contracts. That's about to happen for real, real. Uh, Stephanie Rule. Thank you. Appreciate you. you. And up next, the state of police reform as our coverage of President Biden's second State of the Union address continues. We'll be right back. Following the death of Tyree Nichols at the hands of police last month, there has been a renewed push from Democrats to resume stalled police reform efforts like the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Last week, members of the Congressional Black Caucus met with President Biden and Vice President Harris, where they pushed the president to speak about reviving such legislation at tonight's State of the Union. A White House official tells NBC News that the president is expected to talk about the obligation to do more to combat gun violence and to take action on police reform. However, with a divided Congress, what the president would be able to actually get passed remains to be seen. Joining me now is Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee of Texas and her guest at tonight's State of the Union address, Philonis Floyd, brother of George Floyd. Congresswoman, thank you very much. Mr. Floyd, thank you for being here. I do want to start by asking you, Congresswoman, why you thought it was important to bring uh, George Floyd's brother, um, Philonis, with you tonight. 
Joy, this has to be the year 2023. The American people know that they first saw the murder of George Floyd in 2020 in the streets of Minneapolis. But even before that, there was Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, uh, and then on to Breonna Taylor and many others. We're in the room today with so many broken families, and of course, Tyree Nichols' family, Michael Brown's family, uh, and so many others. And it, it registered that 2023 has to be the year. And so we wanted to have these families here. I wanted uh, Polonius to be here, representing his family and representing Big George, because it is important for the president to know and understand as he speaks about the violence that happened to Tyree that the only solution among others, as Martin King said, I may not be able to change hearts, but I can change laws. This law must pass this quarter, this year, 2023. We can't wait anymore. We simply cannot wait. We must acknowledge to the American people that it's not about police, it's about police misconduct, bad policing. And the way we help police and police community relationships is to pass a bill like the George Floyd Justice and Policing. And Floyd, thank you so much for being here. It's good to see you again. And, you know, your your, your brother's death in, in May of 2020, it did change kind of the whole conversation uh, yet again about uh, gun violence. But it, it feels like that stalled. Um, right now, Tim Scott, the senator who was on the Republican side of negotiating police reform, has said it's a non-starter. The George Floyd Act, as it was passed in the House, is not happening. Um, what do you want to hear the president say tonight, um, knowing that this is something most Americans want? Only 11 percent of Americans say they don't want any changes to policing. What do you want to hear the president say and do? I want to hear that this George Floyd Justice Act be passed. It's time. The time is now. We've been fighting for this to be passed since 2020. It's 2023, and we need it to be passed because I had to sit and listen to all those horrific stories today about people how they lost their kids, and I don't want to see any of that again. So we need to hold these police officers accountable. We need to hold all of these politicians accountable, and. Just like at Tyree um, Kamala Harris said it. She said the George Floyd Police Act needs to be passed, and it and it will be passed. You know, there are several uh, people that are going to be in uh, the, the, the chamber tonight who've lost family members and who, like yourself, are members of these, this club that nobody wanted to be in. How do you feel that you're going to be sitting in the room with people on the Democratic side? They're going to be wearing these 1870 pins. And that is for a young man who was murdered in 1870. His name was uh, his name was Henry Truman. And he was the first free black uh, person known to be shot and killed by police. The person police officer who shot him eventually was convicted of manslaughter. But on the Republican side, they've been walking around wearing AR-15 pins to represent that rifle that is used in so many mass shootings. How do you feel about that? Uh, to me, it's, it's barbaric. Uh, we right now, at the, the time when you see somebody like Tyree Nicholas who has been murdered for the world to see by police officers again, and you sit there and wear a pin with uh, an AR-15 on your shirt, we need to vote you out because you clearly have no understanding for humanity. You can show no no compassion and no empathy for no, nobody, for any human being. And this is a sad situation that we're in. That's why Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee 
I'm always with her because she's always on the battlefield. And I want to thank her for inviting me to this state of union because this is an experience that I always wanted. And the time is now once again. Please pass this George Floyd Police in it. How does that get done, Congresswoman, when you have members of Congress who want to bring guns on the floor of the House, who are wearing these AR-15 pins and making it very clear that the thing they care most about is not people like Philonis Floyd, uh, not people who were killed like George Floyd, but they care most about are guns? Well, you said something before, and you said only 11 percent of the people are not interested in some kind of change. And the Congressional Black Caucus, Steve Porter, the chairman, myself, working as a ranking member of the Crime Subcommittee, uh, Cory Booker, and many others, the advocates, civil rights groups, lawyers like Ben Trump and others, here's what we said. This is an American issue. We asked the question whether any American would want to see their loved one beat on the streets like Tyree Nichols was, or killed on the streets like George Floyd, or anyone else. And the answer is no. So I'm going to ask Republicans. I'm not finished. It has to be 2023. I'll be reaching across the aisle and simply asking that question. Is this the way to have law and order in this country? The four corners of this bill may be expanded, may be uh, modified, uh, names may be added to it, but the key element is an infrastructure of guidance for police of the 18,000 departments with training, with ending racial profile, stopping uh, the escalation, dealing with excessive force, and, and modifying the way the law is and your behavior. As I said, we can't always change hearts, but we can change laws. And I do believe that if the laws had penetrated the states, there would be officers engaged in misconduct who would think more than once about whether or not they were going to pull Tyree Nichols out of the car, whether they were going to sit on uh, George Floyd uh, and not intervene, or as Mrs. Wells said about her son, didn't even have the duty to care. That's the approach we're going to take. I have said it, it's on us as legislators. 2023 has to be the year. And frankly, I think this quarter, our president is the chief comfort. Joy, you know that. He leans in, he, he comforts people, he showed Immediately, he wanted the Wells family to be uh, with him as his guest, as did the Commissioner of Caucus. I'm going to ask him to take that uh, compassion and lean in on getting this bill passed. I think we can do it together. Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee and Flonis Floyd, thank you both very much. And still ahead, the state of gun violence in America as our coverage of President Biden's second State of the Union address continues. We're just over an hour away from the State of the Union address, where President Biden will focus on the issues that he wants to prioritize over the next year, including gun violence. Brandon Say, the man who disarmed the gunman in last month's shooting in Monterey Park, California, will be one of President Biden's guests as he talks about combating gun violence. We're only five weeks into the year, and we've already had 60 mass shootings, more than one per day. It's a uniquely American epidemic that's especially hit our younger generations. It's why two progressive Democratic freshmen have invited parents of mass shooting victims to the State of the Union. Texas Congressman Greg, C Greg Kassar invited Brett Cross, whose son Uzia Garcia was killed in Uvalde. And Florida Representative Maxwell Frost, our first Gen Z congressman, inviting Manuel Oliver, whose son Joaquin was killed in the Parkland shooting. And joining me now is Congressman Maxwell Frost of Florida. 
and Manuel Oliver, father of Joaquin Oliver, who was killed in the Parkland mass shooting. And he is the co-founder of Change the Ref, an organization raising awareness about mass shootings. Thank you both for being here. Congressman Frost, it is good to see you. And I do want to ask you the same question I asked Congresswoman Jackson Lee. Um, why did you feel it was so important um, to bring Mr. Oliver here with you tonight? Well, as you mentioned, the gun violence is an issue that's uniquely American right now. And what we know is we still lose 100 lives a day due to gun violence. The leading cause of death for children in this country are guns. And I, I hate to be blunt about it, but it's important. If your child, God forbid, were to die before 18, the leading reason is because they would be shot to death in this country, in this year right now. And so I brought Manny because of the work he's been doing. Um, he, This is personal for him. He lost his son, but he brings his son, Guac, with him everywhere he goes in the spirit of art, activism, passion, and love. And I look and I look up to that myself. And so that's why I wanted to bring him here today. I also made a promise to him early in our campaign that I would bring him here and uh, also fulfilling that promise and very honored to have him. Well, and we are honored to be able to talk with you, Manuel Oliver. I want to pick, put a picture of your beautiful son, Joaquin Guac Castro. Um, there he is, a handsome, handsome young man. I want you to tell us a little bit about him, please. He looked a lot uh, like his mother. Let me start by saying that. <laughs> and um, you know what? I lost my best friend the same day that I lost my son. And, and my son was shot 225,000 victims ago. I've been waiting for five years to see something happening, to see some change. Um, for the president to address this in, a, in, a, in an urgent way. I think we're all expecting that to happen tonight, and hopefully um, it will, we will see President Biden um, giving us that hope that things will be a priority. You know, you um, folks may remember that uh, previously um, when President Biden did speak about what he wanted to do with gun reform, you vote very vocally said, no, we need more than that. We need you to do more. What do you want to hear from him tonight? Well, I, I, uh, the same day that you're referring to, which that was in the White House, um, I asked him to open a, an office, an office just in charge of gun violence. That is something that President Biden can do without asking any member of Congress or any member of Senate. So that is an easy thing to do. And it will mean a lot to, to all of us, to everyone that is ha- actually looking for that leader that will prioritize our fight. I think we all need to see that happening, to be feel motivated, because we already lost everything that we had. Uh, let's just try to, to, to motivate the fight. We're going to do a fight outside of this building. We're expecting them, like Maxwell and other members of Congress, to do the fight inside the building. And that includes President Biden. And I want to ask you both, but I want to start with you, Congressman. I mean, we are living in a time when, despite the horrors of what happened in Parkland and all of the mass shootings, 60 so far this year, the state where both of you live is now thinking about going permitless carry, essentially expanding uh, the pe- people's ability to carry a firearm without even training, uh, with, with, with very little in the way of a, of a background check. What, what is happening? Well, what we're seeing in Florida is scary, and I'm blunt about it. It's fascism. We have a governor who's inappropriately, he's abusing his power to scapegoat vulnerable communities and pass an agenda based on messaging so he can run for president. He's more interested in running for president than running our state. This permitless carry bill, this is any gun, anywhere, anytime, no permit. That's not common sense. That's, this is a legis, this is legislation that will result in death. 
people will die if this bill passes the Florida House, the Florida Senate, and is signed by the governor. It's unfortunate. It's disappointing. It's not surprising. And this is part of the reason I decided to run for Congress in the first place. But it's going to take more than just one person. We need a movement inside of Congress and outside of it working together to build a world where we have true freedom. And true freedom is not being worried about being gunned down at school, in your community, or even in your own home. And what would you say to the Florida legislature and to the governor, Mr. Oliver? Because after the Parkland shooting, Florida actually did something right. Uh, You know, raise the age to 21 to be able to purchase an AR-15. This feels like they're going backwards. What would you say to the legislature and the governor? Well, this is a slap on the face, uh, considering that the fifth anniversary of the Portland shooting is just a week from today. And as Maxwell said, I need to get involved. And I invite anyone to get involved. And you don't need to go through the tragedy that we went through to be involved. We are going to go to Tallahassee. We're not going to let this happen that easy. Uh, So being involved in democracy is more than just voting. Uh, someone elected DeSantis, he's in charge. We need to get out there and express what we are demanding. For us, lives are more important than anything, but we need to be loud and clear and active. So we will go to Tallahassee and I invite everyone that is watching this interview right now to join us in this movement. We need to save Florida from getting to that point that probably has no return. Have you had the opportunity, Mr. Oliver, to convene with some of the other families and survivors that are going to be there? Have you been able to kind of form a a solidarity and a community to be able to, because obviously this fight needs to take place all over the country? Well, we have been very vocal, my wife Patricia and myself. We have met families not only in Portland, that of course we we know them and we, we, we respect what each other is doing, but we have met families all around the nation. I mean, there's a mother right now losing her son or her daughter while I'm talking to you. So this is urgent. And and again, we need to hear from President Biden tonight that sense of urgency to make things happen. We have to get rid of this epidemic and he can do it. And I want to ask both of you, but I want to start with you, Mr. Oliver, and then you, Congressman. How do you feel about this? Members of Congress on the Republican side walking around with AR-15 pins. How do you feel about that? As a well, I, I did a little round here today asking for that. Who was uh, uh, giving those pins to them? Um, I visited a, a couple of them that were wearing the pin. The answer is that there is a group uh, that is protecting gun rights. And, and, and but I but I my question is that is a very risky message to the nation. So um, part of my visit here, I'm, I'm taking advantage of, of the option that I can visit these guys and have this conversation. I had a few of those conversations. So I don't think they will wear it again, at least mm-hmm. the ones that were able to speak to me today. And yeah. what about you, Congressman? And, you know, this idea of members wanting to bring guns on the floor. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a slap in the face to survivors. It's a slap in the face to the family members and to the people involved in this fight. And Manny just said it. We are just about a week away from the fifth anniversary of what happened in Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. Yeah. And it's important to realize that. It's horrible timing. But on top of that, who wears a pin of an AR-15, a gun like that, yeah. to the United States Congress? It's, so we need to keep fighting for a better world. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Congressman Maxwell Frost and Manuel Oliver, thank you both very much. Much appreciated.